You are listening to the Accessibility Corner on Dialogue Radio Network. The Accessibility Corner aims to bring you topics and resources for our local community of people with disabilities. So, here we go 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get the party started. Welcome, everyone, to the Accessibility Corner here on Dialogue Radio Network. Today is uh, February the 20th. Oh, Lord, what is today's date? 24th. 24th. Um, anyway, everyone have a good good morning, and today we're going to be talking to Mr. Jerome Tillman, Congress, a candidate for Congress District 16. But before we start this whole good stuff, I want to go ahead and, uh, Mr. Abel, we could play that Accessibility Minute. Hey there, welcome to Accessibility Minute, your weekly look at assistive technology. Those clever tools and devices designed to help people who have difficulties with vision, mobility, hearing, or other special needs. Peter Ford founded Control Bionics after researching ways people with paralysis or loss of speech could communicate without using a mouse or keyboard. The company's product, NeuroNode, allows users to do just that. The NeuroNode is a small, non-invasive, wireless EMG assistive communication device. You may be wondering, how does this work? Well, the sensor is easily placed on the skin over the muscle chosen to be the switch. When users try to move that muscle, the NeuroNode detects their bioelectrical EMG signals and uses these signals to allow users to control their tablet, computer, or mobile device. The NeuroNode picks up these signals even if there is no visible muscle movement. With NeuroNode, users can communicate with friends, family, caregivers, and clinicians, send and receive email and text messages, listen to music, read the news, use environmental control systems, browse the web, and so much more. Visit controlbionics.com to learn more. For more information, to read our blog, or to drop us a line, visit eastersealstech.com. That was your Accessibility Minute for this week. I'm Laura Metcalf with the Indiana Project at Easter Seals Crossroads in Indiana. Well, everyone, uh, check out the device. That's a very uh, essential device to help those that have a mobility uh, disability. And today we're talking, and we'll be talking to Mr. Jerome Tillman. This gentleman took part in our uh, Congress debate back on the 15th of February. And he made a lot of good points, and he, he graciously accepted an invitation to come on board and talk further about his perspective. And, and I like this gentleman because he's, uh, he has a lot of good things to say. And uh, we've had John Cardillo on, on board. We have had uh, Veronica Escobar. So I just feel as um, a regional partner for Rev, Rev Up Texas, it's my responsibility to bring these candidates to the forefront to educate both the voters and the listeners, which you are, the voters, and the candidates to issues that really impact persons with disabilities. So uh, we're going to have uh, many discussions. Uh, we are going to talk some politics because I do want uh, our listeners to know his perspective on that. And then we're going to be talking about the Disability Integration Act and a bill that passed recently, which is H.R. 620. So, first of all, Mr. Tillman, good morning to Tortugas Studio. Did I say that right? 
Oh, man, I was messing up. Good morning, tortuga. sir. There, yeah, tortuga. We got tortuga. I got that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But you got to say it slowly because porque that's how the tortugas movement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Tor- despacito. Okay. Oh, there you go. Hey, so tell my listeners, uh, I know you've been on Mr. Uh, Abel's show before, but kind of give us a background where you're from. And I know you've been uh, your retired major from the military, from the Army, right? That's correct, yes. And so just kind of give us, our listeners, a little background of who you are. Washington, D.C. is my hometown. That's where I grew up, the nation's capital, and look forward to going back there as a congressional representative from this district. My my parents had 13 children. I'm number 12. And you have an, uh, certainly have an opportunity to sit down and dialogue with people across the table. You just cannot push your way in because you got a whole lot of other people to deal with. Uh, went to high school there, graduated, went to uh, Pennsylvania Military College, uh, then went to graduate school three different places, uh, Western Kentucky, went to uh, Northeastern for a while, and then uh, finished up my uh, my third master's at Webster University out of St. Louis. Went to Command and General Staff College on the Army's dime to learn how to plan and execute Defense Department operations at the national level. I uh, have two sons, uh, both products of the public education system here, Right now, I have a professorship with the community college and the university network, and I'm a middle school social studies teacher. There are a whole lot of other things I could tell you about, but we'll pause right there and go back to the question. So you've had, what, 15 years as a teacher, right, sir? Uh, 15 plus. I'm in my 16th year now. When did you start? Were you two years old or what? Man, because you sound young. Well, <laughs> it's, it, it's been a little while, and... Uh, I won't discuss numbers right now. We'll keep that a secret. There, there's a little Spanish in Podemos a mantener un secreto. There you go. So, uh, but first of all, I do want to thank you for your, your, your service, uh, Mr. Tillman, for 21 years. That's a lot of, that's a lot of years to, do it, to volunteer to this country, and I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. You're appreciate welcome. It. And I'm lucky to be here, frankly. One of the things that I talk about uh, as, a, as a soldier and a veteran is that uh, many who go into service and considering that we're in the longest war that the United States has ever known right now in our 17th year in Afghanistan, many soldiers enter the battlefield fully fit uh, with no no complications at all. They come off of the battlefield and they suffer from various maladies, both psychological and physical. And I want to talk a little bit about that today for those who leave the battlefield uh, in different ways than when they came in. I met a gentleman, uh, Mr. Tillman, his name is Mike Marlarcy. He was in Afghanistan, and his, uh, his Hummer got hit by a, what is it called, IED? IED, you said, improvised explosive devices, they call IEDs. IED, and instantly he lost both of his, both of his eyes, was torn away from his face, but he, he's progressed, and you're right, Mr. Tillman, because going into battle, you want to do it for country, but you don't realize that you have those psychological uh, impact, and then you also have into which coming back there are no legs, uh, missing uh, an eye. And so go ahead and talk about that, sir. You know. Well, again, one of the things that really uh, propelled me into this race, again, I was on the ballot in 2012 and concerned about the, the lack of service commitment to the soldiers who performed services for the country. And that our Veterans Administration was not, I mean, the Veterans Administration Hospital certainly was not servicing our folks well. And we have not improved over those five years. And what, that, what I was principally concerned about are not just those persons who are uh, in our community already with certain disabilities, but the people who come off the battlefield who did not go into the battlefield with that circumstance, but now have come off. And I think that we have got to remind the public that 
persons who are in disability status in any capacity are no less a citizen than anybody else. And whatever rights, responsibilities, and privileges that any citizen enjoys, everybody else needs to enjoy, including those with disabilities, and that's what I'm fighting for. Amen to that. And I, you, during our, our debate, you brought up a very like uh, analogy I loved, and I'm going to ask you, remember that quilt comment you made about the quilt? Yeah, it's... Um, Many patches, many pieces, many colors, many sizes, all woven and held together by a common thread. Jesse Jackson talked about that in 1984, and I borrowed the, uh, the analogy from there. And what we need to understand in this community and in this country is we don't have to be the same in all the superficial aspects. But uh, we all believe red, white, and blue. We all salute the same flag. And then nobody ever asked me when I stepped off of this continent going to any place else in the world, uh, when we were engaged with uh, what... Uh, what we call America's enemies. Nobody asked me what my political affiliation was, didn't care what my skin color was, what my religion was. Can you shoot, move, and communicate? Can you do the job, fight, win, and return? And uh, that's where I come from when I talk about that quilt. You have that history. Yeah, because yeah. you and I are different in, 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 in that capacity. We have a space on that quilt, but what we need to understand is no matter how many patches are on there, if you shake that quilt, everything moves. Mm -hmm. We all move together no matter what patch we represent on that quilt. And, you know, you're, you're, that analogy is so good. It, it, it kind of reflects what the state of campaign is now. Uh, but before I forget, you're listening to the Accessibility Corner here on Dialogue Radio Network, sponsored by the St law office of Stephanie Towns and Ayala. We're talking to Mr. Uh, Jerome Tillman, uh, congressional candidate for District 16. So, you know, what I mean by the campaign, you saw it that day on the February the 15th. The, the campaign is, has turned such an ugly head. And I haven't seen you really do that. And I appreciate that. You really stuck to the facts and... You say, look at my record, which you want to hold your record up to other other individuals, but not kind of point fingers. Yeah, I, I tell you what, uh, and here's another piece that I brought to the table at the forum. And I want to thank uh, you, Avell, and everybody else who helped put that together, because I think in other print and broadcast media venues, there is a deprivation of information. And that when uh, the public does not know the full menu of the way they can be nourished through the political process, they are deprived of the full nutrition that this campaign can offer. And, and uh, going back to my point, I don't want to say something bad about somebody else. I say something what's better about me, not what's bad about somebody else. And what happens is when you get into this backbiting, this vitriol, this castigation, name calling and, and criticizing, it diverts focus from the real issues that we need to be talking about and, and, and focused on. And if you carry that kind of mindset forward at the national level, you are only contributing to the problem. And I'm going to give you another analogy that I'm going to pass you to Mike back. Mm -hmm. uh, I would listen to Miss Escobar talking about, and I've seen commercials, I want to go up there and I want to fight the president. Well, why, why would you want to pick a fight with a guy? You got to get up there and see what we can do, not to do finger pointing, but to join hands. You may have disagreed with me. I may disagree with you, but let's see if we can find some common ground. What makes that even more specific and more critical is that because we do, do not have a majority in the House of Representatives or the Senate, you need to come up there a little bit more pious, a little bit more what things can we do to mend the bridges? Where can we find the common ground? And I don't hear that. Uh, between uh, what we call the front-runner candidates. And I think it would hurt us if we carry that kind of mindset forward. I hear you. No, and, you know, talking about the veterans, um, Mr. Tillman, what can you propose to make those services uh, improve? Because I think <clears throat> when back, what, you said four or five years ago, it was at one star, and it's still at one star. That's right. And so what can you do, 
or suggest or recommend to improve those services? Well, very, very tangible and, and a far, there's a broad, bright line between my ideas and proposals and those of the other candidates in the race on both party sides. Very tangibly, what happens is, and because I am a veteran and I do go to the hospital there for my medical services, that there is a waiting line for veterans who are trying to gain services because we have so few medical professionals there to deliver services. Now, how do we improve that situation? You at least have to bring balance or at least put more people on the medical services side than we have veterans coming through the door. Now, how do you do that? You have a medical school right here in the city. And what you say to those persons who are in residency, if you will come on board with us, we will pick up a percentage of your medical tuition in exchange for your coming on board with a four, five, six-year commitment to the Veterans Hospital. What do you do with that? Then you take that same paradigm and you place that over medical schools throughout the United States. And then say, if you will commit X number of years to us, we will commit ourselves to X number of dollars to relieve you of your tuition costs. Now, where's the benefit? Where's the upside? First, you have more medical professionals who are on the bench than you have veterans waiting for service. That's one. Two, you have state-of-the-art principles being brought to the, the medical theater. These students are fresh out of school. They have seen the latest technologies. They have the latest experiences. And they can give you the most up-to-the-minute service. The same way we do the service academies, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. You scholarship those individuals in exchange for X number of years of service. Let's do the same thing for our medical people. Bring them on board. Let me pivot to the DACA people for just a minute, and then I'll have yes, to hand you the mic back. We are about to make a foolish decision. That deadline on the DACA uh, decision is coming up here the first week of March. Mm -hmm. But in doing an analysis of the, the demographics of that DACA population, we got a, a ton of people in there who have medical service backgrounds. Now, why would we sweep that skill set to the edge of America and say goodbye? We have made property tax investments in them for their elementary education, their secondary education, their scholarship in the colleges and universities. They own homes, own businesses. Seventy percent of the United States economy is driven by consumption. Why would we yank a hole in the United States economy by pulling 800,000 people out? It doesn't pass the make sense test. Uh, oh, by the way, I've been using that term. Is that okay? Oh, that's fine. The make sense test? I've yeah. been using that sometimes. It just comes out naturally. Yeah. Because sometimes says, you, when you say things and you, it, you hear someone, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Like, for example, when you talk about the, the veterans, that we're spending all this money on defense, on the, on the defense uh, budget and buying the latest equipment for military uh, usage. Uh, the, the finest equipment, which I, I understand, but at the same time, you have to understand the concept of the health care component. Well, what, what, what problem we have in the Congress is this. You have uh, a composition of the Congress who, after World War II, you had north of 75% of the people who were in Congress had been off, coming off America's battlefields. And, and soldiers were not concerned about so much about party affiliation as they were about getting the job done, solving the problem. Okay. Uh, again, when I make the analogy, I didn't worry about somebody's sexual orientation, what their race was, religion was. If you're on my left flank, can you secure my left flank? Can you so secure my right flank? If you're supposed to cover my six, which is what we say in the military, if you can cover my rear, I didn't care about that stuff. And that's the kind of mindset we need to bring. Now it is less than 20%. Okay. And that people don't realize, and this is a Plato saying, only the dead have seen the end of war. 
And once you deploy soldiers, when you bring them back, if they alive, you will pay for that. You're obligated. The government is obligated to pay for that Social until that soldier dies. <clears throat> okay. Sir. And we we do ourselves a disservice. We we dishonor the very oath that our congressional representatives take when we do not honor the needs of those persons coming off of the battlefield. Number one, and and more specific to your point, not to look at any citizen as any less than any other citizen based on any malady or disability that they might suffer through. And Congress doesn't seem to see that. And I'm gonna go up there and give them a great big reminder. There we go. <laughs> We're gonna segue into. I'm gonna kind of uh, segue into this. Um, during the, the the congressional debate, we talked about we brought up an issue that's very dear to very uh, many of my friends that use uh, community-based services here in El Paso, um, called the Dial- the Disability Integration Act. And I know you spoke on that, and you want to go ahead, because you only had a minute or two minutes. Now I want to give you as much time as you want. Go ahead and elaborate on your comments. Well, I certainly appreciate the opportunity once again. And the message I really want to impart to all the listeners today, uh, think about it in, in this regard. Your citizenship is your citizenship, and no matter what your social circumstance might happen to be, it does not diminish your station as a citizen of this country. And what I saw and and what I'm seeing with the uh, Disability Integration Act uh, is some foot dragging on the part of the legislative branch as it is as if we are trying to create impediments to put in place whatever modifications need to take place in our businesses to best service those people who are just as much a citizen as, as everybody else. And, and I think what, uh, what happens is if we don't enforce, if we don't force enforcement on the part of those businesses, it reduces a person who should expect services. I'm talking about curb cuts, restroom access, elevators, and so forth. It reduces their vulnerability to liability. They are trying not to have to subject themselves to lawsuits. So if we relax the standards in our businesses, they can turn around and say, well, the law really doesn't require me to do that. And it creates an alibi. It creates a way to evade servicing the population based on something very simple. You're a citizen. You have the same rights and access to every other service that everybody else has who does not have your same situation. A lot of times the private sector... uh they kind of look at uh, if you make a, a reasonable accommodation as, ugh, I gotta spend money. And I always say, accommodating someone is not only the law, but it's good customer service. Yeah, you know? if, you flip the, if you flip the script on that just a minute, say, gee, well, I gotta spend money. But guess what? If you create that availability and that accessibility, you could bring four, five, ten more yep. customers in there too. And we have money. Yeah. And we have our money, our color of money is the same as green. Yeah, you reach in your pocket, don't make a difference where your pocket is. Could be a, could be a, a pouch, could be a wallet, whatever the case might be. But you are just as much a citizen, and the dollar color does not discriminate. No. Nope. And, and you're talking about money. Um, you brought up another good point about the DIA, um, which you wanted to introduce also about increasing the pay for those providers that provide those services, like, the, like my wife. She's a personal care attendant. And I think that's a very a good idea. Desert Adapt here in El Paso, which is a grassroots organization, they've been trying to push that for many years, or adapt nationally also. Yeah. But to pay those providers, because what happens a lot of times, these providers, they do a lot for $8. I mean, I have... Uh, we, I've seen it myself. My wife will tell you stories, and when you offer someone eight dollars to do what they're doing, and then someone the same deal eight dollars to flip a burger, they're gonna go. They'd rather go flip a burger, because it's a lot easier. Well, here, here's what I say about that, and I go back to this point about uh, our uh, socioeconomic and political status does not diminish our station as a citizen. 
And my uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, CEO's name is Wes Jurig. Uh, we didn't always agree on a number of things, but he was a really smart guy business-wise. And he said, your, your budget is a reflection of your priorities. And it is difficult for me to put a price tag on somebody's dignity. And when you have somebody who is willing to do those things on behalf of persons who, who need disability services, that you do not want to give anybody the impression that you think any less of them, that they are treated any less than anybody else based on whatever physical circumstance they might be going through. And, that and that's why, that's why uh, and, and my, my, my wife today, for example, I'll give you an example, uh, Mr. Tillman, and this is what I kind of go back on when I said access is a civil right, and I mean that, access is a civil right. When oh, yes. I, when, I, when I say that, that's not only for persons with disabilities. Like today, my wife wants me to go with her to a, a conference, I guess, for the LBGT. And I'm like, she, well, we have, we have to support them too. And I'm like, you know what, that's true because discrimination at the end of the day doesn't matter. It, it affects everyone in every population. And that's why when I say access is a civil right, it is. It does not diminish your station as a citizen. Mm-hmm. Whatever your circumstance might happen to be. And I was going out with a guy, and his name's Dan Webb, and he runs what's called Veterans at Breakfast, which harnesses the ideas of many of the veterans who live in El Paso. And he would, or once a week, he'd load up his truck, 50 meals in styrofoam plates. Oh, I've seen him. What's his name? Dan, his name is Dan Webb. Yeah, I think I've seen him on Facebook. Yeah, and, and, he's, and he's invited the candidates out to ride with him. And, and it's just an eye-opening experience and, and one that I want to share with you for just a minute. Sure. On one street corner, it was on Dyer and Fred Wilson. And he knows the, these cubby holes where these, where these people are. And uh, we pull over, and there's a lady sitting on the curb uh, next to an abandoned pawn shop. So I get out, and my other, uh, my other campaign assistant, Jeanette Bandy, gets out. And we go over to greet the person, take a plate of food over. And I'm introducing myself, and then Jeanette's introducing herself, and the lady looks up at me and says, I know you already. You were my government professor 15 years ago. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, I mean, you talk about getting choked up, and I'm not usually a person who's short on words. And, and I was stunned that you don't know at what point in your life you could become in, you could become a part of what you might look down your nose at for somebody else. We just don't know what circumstances might befall us in the future. God's got the plan. Sir. And all we need to do is we, we just got to be ready to follow it. But it just choked me up so much that she had such a fond recollection of her experiences in my class, but then began to talk about some of the things that happened in, in her life. But I go back to my original point, George, when I say it does not make you any less of a citizen. Mm-hmm. And Dan's message is, Jerome, if you become the representative, you need to understand that these are part of the people that you'll be representing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll tell you a, a quick experience on my uh, quick uh background me i went from working at the department of labor one month i'm literally was in i want to say three months i went from working at the department of labor in dallas to being homeless and that's that's a big jump yeah it's a big jump i never thought i had my own office i had this and that and you know circumstances they are the what they are and i ended up homeless for a month and but now i am i'm here where i am now but going back to your story you make that when you say that you make that impact, Mr. Tillman. You have to understand that when you do something, so that student she probably remembered you because you made an impact on her, 
And what I mean when I may say that is that we want our congressperson to make an impact when they go to Congress. Is it hopefully it's you or someone else to go out there and represent us, not their own agenda. And I've heard your agenda and it's pretty clear. You made a pretty clear agenda that you wanna this is what I wanna do. You have a plan. And going we're gonna talk more about your plan. And before we finish, I want you to give us a synopsis of who you are, why you want us to vote for you, but that'll be later on in the show. Just okay, to your all head. right. But the thing is, veterans' issues is very important here in El Paso. Uh, persons with disabilities' issues is very important here in El Paso, and I'm glad that you're in tune, in tune with that. Um, but hopefully going further, when you go into Congress, you don't lose that detachment to that connection to our community. Uh, like what our current congressman does, he comes every quarter, I think, and does a town hall. Are you planning on doing that too? Well, the short the short answer is yes. And I, let me give you uh, an analogy also uh, that I use frequently in the campaign. No one can legitimately say that they represent a people unless they are hearing from those people what they need and what they want. And you don't want to make suppositions. In, in sales, we used to call it pre-qualifying. You look at somebody and you make a determination. You never say a word. He can afford this. He, she can't afford that. And those superficial prejudices oftentimes cut people loose. And, and when I talk about the congressman who is in seat right now, I was on the ballot with him in 2012. Oh, that's right. And, and many of the things that I'm talking about right now, were leftover issues that did not get resolved for the five years that he has been in. And I got back on the ballot as soon as I learned that he was going to make a, a Senate run. And one of the things that I said to him and I said to uh, Miss uh, Miss Escobar, I said, if you're talking about just taking the baton from him and running the same way, consider what it is that you're saying that if we had a one star with the Veterans Administration, what we have done is we have further crippled the Veterans Administration by staying with the same game plan. Mm -hmm. Now, you will go out on the campaign trail and brag and boast about being from the safest city in America, but you're the same person along with Beto O'Rourke who tried to get the police chief fired. Now, why would you say on the one hand, Oh, we are so blessed to have such a safe city, but then fire the guy who's responsible for creating the very environment that you enjoy. And people don't, re don't remember. I remember that. They made a big, a big con a news conference. and So, well, we're coming back. This is a very good discussion. Time flew, of course, when you're having fun. Oh, yeah. So we're here on Dialogue Radio Network with the Accessibility Corner, and we'll be back after this message. I'm Jessica Clute, attorney at law. The law firm of Stephanie Townsend Ayala and Associates specializes in estate planning, probate, trusts, wills, powers of attorney, nursing home advocacy, Medicaid planning, and guardianships. I'm Stephanie Townsend Ayala. Our attorneys, including Jennifer Coulter, my daughter Jessica, and I are University of Texas Law School graduates. Jessica and I are also proud second and third generation University of Texas grads. Call the law firm of Stephanie Townsend Ayala at 533-0007.
Welcome back to the Accessibility Corner here on Dialogue Radio Network. Brought to you by this show is brought to you by the Law Office of Stephanie Calvin Ayala. You better quit playing those music, Mister. Well, that throws me off. That's good music. <laughs> um, so during the break, we're talking, and, and and one thing I wanted to bring up, which kind of reflected on my postings after the congressional debate, on the first person language, which means. The person is addressed as a person first and then their disability. For example, I'm a person with a visual impairment and et cetera, et cetera. Um, those who use a wheelchair are not wheelchair, wheelchair bound or they're not confined to their wheelchairs. And uh, I don't know, Mr. Tillman, did you notice one of the candidates, I'll, I'll call him out, Mr. Seaberger, he's during his comments, and I'm still upset about this, he said, suffering with a disability. I'm not suffering. Trust me, I'm not. I'm very happy. So, what do you? What's your your idea on first person language? Well, I go back to, and it it just encapsulates uh, my original point. You are whatever comes after. You are a citizen first. Nothing else diminishes that. It does not matter what your circumstance is, and you could find yourself from the from the high ground that one might believe they can speak from. The next day, a circumstance could befall you, and you could be in the very position that you look down your nose at. Yes, sir. Okay. So you could have a stroke. You could, especially here in El Paso. Yeah, yeah you, you you don't yeah. know. It could be a car accident. Well, yeah. consider the situation that took place in Florida. Okay. Yes. Now, uh, you go to school in the morning, everybody had their toast and coffee and eggs and bacon, whatever. And in, in a split second, the lives of those families have changed. And the ones that are injured? Yes, sir? Amen yeah. to that? They, 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 they have changed. Now, 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 now that you brought that up, let me ask you this. And this doesn't pass the make sense test for me. You have an individual that could buy an AR-15 at 19 years old, but in the same tone, our same government says, well, you can't buy a beer or buy a cigarette until you're 21. That doesn't, make this, that doesn't pass the make sense test. No, it does not pass the make sense test. And let me extend the example. For the weapons that I used in the various theaters of operation where I have been, those are to fight America's enemies. It does not pass the make sense test to make those kinds of tools of war available to a civilian population. The scenarios are vastly different. And to simply look at the brief distance in history, we have to turn back. There have been 17 campus shootings in the United States just this year. Mr. Tillman, before I forget, I want to bring up something. You've been that, you have that experience. You actually fired those weapons. Oh, yes. Tell my listeners, does that really belong in people that just want to defend their home? No. That kind of weapon? No, as a matter of fact, you run the risk of injuring more than just the person who you believe is a perpetrator. Um, if you talk about the what's called the rate of fire, you pull the trigger, and if you miss, if you're unfamiliar with it or if you're not proficient in there, you could wind up with those rounds going through a wall, ricocheting off of some something else, and in injuring somebody else, there is no need to have that. So where do you stop? Do you have a tank in your driveway? Uh, do you have a, an RPG, um, which is a, it's a, it's a rapidly um, projectile grenade? Is what, okay. what they're called. But a rocket projectile grenade. You you don't need those kinds of systems in a civil society. 
And the question we begin to ask ourselves is, if we let those kinds of things continue, how civil are we? We don't need to put in the hands of the civilian population the same tools and equipment that we put in the hands of our soldiers to fight wars on behalf of the United States abroad. Again, it doesn't pass a make-sense test. Well, what's your, what's your, uh, your opinion that the AR-50 is afforded to us by the Constitution, the Second Amendment? What do well, you say to that? You, you, you have to put these things on balance, okay, because the persons who suffered from, at the hands of that AR-15, where, what happens to that simple right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, okay? Should that hang in the balance? Should you be able to walk in and deprive me of those same basic constitutional rights? I mean, and those are spelled out in the Declaration of Independence when Thomas Jefferson wrote that, mm -hmm. that uh, those are enshrined in the document. Putting a weapon on the street in the hands of a civilian does not negate your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when you put those kinds of weapons on the street, you jeopardize every other citizen who surrounds you because you face the possibility of depriving them of life, liberty, and the pursuit so of happiness. happiness. So one more last thing, we'll go to another subject. But uh, President Trump has suggested or recommended or whatever he does regarding arming teachers. You're a teacher. You've been there for many years. You've seen this. Um, just tragedies on the other campuses. What do you say to that arming teachers? Do you think that's a good idea, a bad idea? What's your idea? I, I think it's a bad idea, and I'll give you several reasons why. Uh, number one, I want to give you an analogy. Let's say that uh, five of us are in a sandbox, okay? One person in the sandbox has a rock, okay? Now, do you try to persuade the individual to give up the rock or do you give the other four people a rock what do you do is you begin to create this mindset is well shucks i got a rock he's got a rock so we can now start throwing rocks at each other which escalates a problem rather than disarming the person who's got the rock so we can have dialogue compromise and consensus think it out and talk it out before you have to fight it out True. Okay. Amen to that. That, that, that. That's the way to go. Now, the other thing I concern myself with is those students who are already on campus who start to get a little brave, a little bold, and begin to challenge authority on the classroom. Then you got a student who's going to wrestle a gun away from a teacher. The teacher might leave it unattended uh, for, for a minute. Students knowing that it exists there. Teachers who may be provoked to a point where they know they have it on their hip, and they say, okay, you didn't do your geometry test right here, and then they show you a sidearm. It, it lends itself to a slippery slope of incivility, and the campus should be anything but that. You, you're there. You oh, experience yes. it. So, oh, yes. I mean, you, we got to listen to you, sir. I mean, you, you, and, and going, I want to segue, um, like I said, we're going to talk politics and also accessibility. Now, I'm not really familiar when, when I was going to school in high school and middle school 25 years ago. Man, sounds bad just saying that. It's been a little while. <laughs> it's been, it's been, been a little while, right? It's been decades. <laughs> <laughs> but um, how is it now when you have a student in your classroom that has a, a student? I don't like this special needs term. I hate that with a passion. I don't know why. But what do you what do? You do? do you still have, um, what's the procedure when you have someone, a student with a disability in your class? Do you? Well, there are regulations uh, written into law that remind us that they are no less a citizen. I want to keep coming back to mm -hmm. that, okay? However you come into the classroom, you are no less a citizen than anybody else. And what we, what we do and what we are trained to do and are constantly trained to do 
is look at different approaches to how to deliver the curriculum to that student who may not receive it the same way. And, and I'm really fond of metaphors and analogies, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Dead Poets Society. Yes. But, I've actually just went out to see, yes, I did yeah, see it. Huh? But Dead, Dead Poets Society, uh, Robin Williams had a great message. And what he would do, he would stand up on the desk, and students would look up at him. And he said, the environment hasn't changed. All I have done is given you a new angle to look at the person who's delivering the message. And we need to think about persons who come into our classroom the same way. Uh, Because I'm the teacher and you're the student, you may accept the curriculum in a different way. You might be an auditory learner. You might be a kinesthetic learner. My job is to arm myself with the professional skills to be able to deliver this in a manner that you can receive it because I'm trying to nourish you intellectually. And everybody does not receive medicine the same way. They may have the same illness, but they don't take medicine the same way. I might need an anecdote. Penicillin might be for me, but it might be a different medication for somebody else. But our quest is to make the student well, to make the patient well. I'll give you one more analogy, and then I'll pass you the mic back Uh, because I want to pivot for just a minute in this charter schools, okay, Okay, in, in the area that you're talking about. In the public education system, we don't pick and choose who can come through the door any more than an emergency room attendant can determine the kind of patient that's going to come through the door when the, when the ambulance shows up. You take whoever shows up and use your best knowledge, skills, and abilities to bring that person back to some kind of a stable, survival search, circumstance or situation. The school system is the same way. I can't pick and choose who comes through the door but with the combination of skill sets and competencies that I have learned over time and the training that I get, I need to learn how to deliver the education product to whoever comes through the door. That's true. And let me ask you one more thing before we go. When it comes to a student with a disability, and I'm, what I'm hearing from you, that's why we have the candidates here to kind of get your perspective, and I'm, I'm hearing from you that you don't really look at that, huh? You just look at them as a student. Well, you have to figure out... You have to figure out the best way to deliver the product. Again, if you strip away any other thing, these uh, what we call the individual education plans, uh, modifications to the curriculum, uh, those persons who have what are called 504 statuses where they have a temporary circumstance that, let's say they could have broken their arm so they can't write as clearly, whatever the case might happen to be. Again, I go back to my original point. It does not diminish their station as a student. It does not diminish their station as a citizen. And it's incumbent upon us to have the training mechanisms in place to address those contingencies because it's not a matter of if they're going to come through your door. It's only a matter of when. And you don't want to wait to get ready when they come through the door. You need to be ready for the likelihood that they are going to come through the door. Yep, that's the best way to approach it. Pro- be yeah. proactive instead of reactive. Yeah, you you, you got to do it that way because, again, the physician doesn't know who's going to come through the door. You just got to be ready. Now, before I forget, we had one comment or one uh, question at the summit or at the conference <clears throat> regarding tuition uh, for, for those college students. And uh, can you elaborate more on that, what your, your, your comments were on that? Well, I heard one guy say, well, it ought to be free and everybody ought to get a free education. And I said, okay, uh, we've gone down that trail before, but I said there's no such thing as free. Somebody is picking up the tab. And I used to tell my children this too. 
when they were young. I said, whatever you have in your life as a child, understand somebody's given something up so you can have what you have. Now, what my recommendation was for those persons who aspire for higher education in any capacity, you got two, you got two basic ways to go. Number one, there's got to be a quid pro quo. Rather than simply forgive the tuition costs, what things in the way of services can you bring to the society? For those persons who may have gone through medical school, instead of the free tuition, how about, okay, you got that, you've gone through two, three, four, whatever many years of medical school, instead of just forgiving your expense, come on over to the Veterans Administration. How about let's fine-tuning your skill to address some of the particulars that may exist in our healthcare delivery system. Look at an expertise that you have developed as a result of the education, and instead of just saying, okay, you're forgiven all those, come on in and show a little bit of quid pro quo, show a little bit of gratitude by offering a service that you know your community needs. The that other, shows uh, responsibility. Yeah, because otherwise you, 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 you cultivate irresponsibility. One of the biggest mistakes I made, I bought each of my sons a car when they graduated from uh, high school and they went into college. Big mistake. Because anytime the car broke, they called me. <laughs> <laughs> they give me the phone call. Then when they bought their own, they didn't have to give me, they wouldn't give me a phone call. So I can't call dad on this one right here. I can't call dad on this one. I got to take care of it myself. Um, and the same thing holds true with that, with that analogy that uh, some of the other candidates use. No, it, 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 it's not free. For what you get, you have a sensing, you have a sense of responsibility and ownership when somebody holds you accountable for, for what things you enjoy. And I think one of the worst things we do is determine, Spanish is called uh, cheaply. Yeah, okay. no, I hear you, and if, and you're right. I mean, if you if you're gonna do the the time to go to school, why not um, contribute to society? To Absolutely, pay back? you know. Absolutely. No, I hear you. I hear you. Absolutely. So, talk moment of segue before we run out of time. Um, we kind of touched on a little bit. Um, I know you see my Facebook postings, and I briefly talked about it. A bill called the HR six twenty. It's you know, I think it was called the Education and ADA Reform Act, and what that basically does. In my opinion, it kind of reinvented the wheel regarding the ADA, which I think is kind of dumb. A bunch of organizations protested and it still passed. What it does, basically, it allows the private sector owner more time to comply with the ADA and puts the burden back on us to prove our point. In other words, previously, let's say I go to, and I'll give you just a generic example. Okay. I go to a restaurant. And they don't have menus that are accessible. They're, they're, you know, narcs print or braille. And I'll tell the owner, and he would say, okay, you know what, give me a few days or a, a month to fix it. Now, I, as a consumer, have to literally write a letter, tell him which of my violations of my laws, my rights were violated under the ADA, present it to him, give him six months, up to six months to fix it. So I'm, to me, it's just ridiculous. And what's your opinion on some kind of, that kind of legislation, what do you think, what was the purpose of that? I well, well, I go back to, to my point again. Uh, it does not diminish our status as a citizen. And if you look at the business person the same way you would look at, look at me, these maladies, these circumstances are not surprises. And what I would expect people to do is create as many venues and avenues as possible to avail my customer to a service, not to put impediments and speed bumps between 
them and the service that they come in to to seek. And they'll pay for it. Just like you said, you talked about the color of money. It does not discriminate. A $5 bill coming out my pocket look the same as the $5 bill coming out your pocket. And whether you're rolling there on crutches, if you come in on, on, on crutches, uh, if you're coming in with, uh, with uh, a, uh, a prosthetic, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln's still on that bill. And if you're really in a profit motive to serve your entire public, your focus needs to be widen the aperture so as many people can come in and avail themselves to the service as, as possible. And these, uh, this situation with this HR 620 seems to be a way to attempt to discourage people from coming back. So I don't have to spend the dollars to make the necessary accommodation. Flip the coin. 70% of the United States economy is driven by consumption. And if you really want to have a profitable business, find the best way, the widest aperture that you can to bring as many people into your business as possible because the more people that come in, the more profits you get a chance to make. And they'll spread the word. I tell you oh, what yeah. I tell people, if you treat me well, I'm going to tell a whole lot of people. You treat me bad, I'm going to tell a whole lot the of cheapest, people. Cheapest, cheapest form of, of advertisement, word of mouth. That's right. And you know what's funny is that when I tell the business owners, you know, open up your business for those people with disabilities. They're like, what for? They don't come. Exactly. Open up your business and, and they'll come. <laughs> and, and I've heard that so many times. I'll have a, a business owner tell me, well, no one in the wheelchair ever comes in here. Well, that's why, because your restroom is not accessible. But the point is, at the end of the day, our money's the same. I want to spend it where I want where I feel comfortable. We went to a restaurant, Mr. Tillman. Um, I think it was called Hymas Hut. So I, I'm sitting there, which is... Just never really happened in the restaurant. So I said to my wife, the waitress comes up and she says, Oh, the Coke's right in front of you. Your spoon's to your left of you. Your fork's to the right of you. I'm like, What? I never heard. So she walks away, the waitress, I tell my wife, She's telling me where everything's at. So she comes back and I'm like, That is awesome. I never had that. She goes, Yeah, because there's another customer who comes in that's visually impaired. And I'm like, So guess what? Next time I'm going to go, I want to make sure I go to Hymas Hut because I felt comfortable. You know, I wasn't. Um, I feel like part of anybody, you know, just like you say, it didn't diminish who I am just because I have a disability. Yes. It's- the, uh, the, the, I mean, there's so many metaphors I use, and I, I don't know how many people out there are biblically inclined, but I use a lot of uh, what, uh, what Christ would talk about as parables. It's, it, it's, a, it's a truth to convey a moral lesson, and he would always tell a little story. And, and one that, re, that you reminded me of just now is a person who came into a restaurant and ordered a bowl of soup. So the soup came, and uh, the soup sat there. So when the, the person on the wait staff came back to the table, said, what's the problem? So the person on the wait, I said, you can figure this out in just a minute. So they stood there, and they said, what, what's wrong with the soup? It feel like it's hot. I remember what it, it smelled good, looked good. I watched it get fixed, but it didn't bring a spoon. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what, what do I say when, when I say that? There's certain things that go together. I hear you. Okay. Now, you would, you would not serve somebody a bowl of soup and give them a fork. Know what services you provide and all of the accessories that go along with providing the service. And the person who dealt with you at that hut did exactly what I'm talking about. I like that. Man, you know, I tell you, know, you I was, I'm going to start writing. That was a good analogy about the soup. Yeah. I mean, because think about it. You're right. I mean, metaphorically, if you don't provide all the soup, like, yeah, give them a steak, but don't give them a fork or knife. Yeah. 
Or, or, and, uh, no, I hear you. I hear you. Let, let me connect this also to some of this negative campaigning that I think is poisoning the well. Um, I was talking to Ms. Fennenbach. He said, well, I'm just going to tell the truth. I said, okay, I got no problem with that. Uh, and I'm just going, and then, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's her name is? Uh, Miss Escobar. Well, she's telling the lies. Okay, here we go. Let me give you a quick analogy. In politics, if you see an illness, let's say it's cancer, it requires a surgery. You want to cut the cancer out. There are two ways to do it. One, you could have anesthesia and a scalpel and a laser focus on getting after the cancer, but you don't want to hurt the patient. You don't want to put the patient in pain. The other thing you could do is go in with no anesthesia and a spoon and cut it out. Now, what hurts the body is the spoon and no anesthesia. If you look at the body as the body politic, the electorate of the society, you want to eliminate the cancer, but do you want to introduce pain to the patient? No, you don't want the patient to be hurt. You want to eliminate the problem. And this negative campaigning, this mudslinging, this backbiting is given surgery with a spoon. The body politic is hurt. If you have the tact, bring dignity to the process, introduce the anesthesia before the surgery. You have protected the body from pain, you have focused on the illness, and you bring the right tool to cut it out. And when you do this negative stuff and this back and forth and things like that, you hurt and you discourage people from either wanting to be a candidate or wanting to participate proactively in the process. Like me, um, I, I mentioned this to you briefly, and I mentioned this before, I'm, I'm still seriously considering running for city council sometime in the future, and that what I've seen as the negative back and forth, I'm like, should I really? But let me ask you this, Mr. Tillman, back in 2012, what was that, Like, and I've, I've asked other candidates, what was your aha moment to make you jump in? Because jumping into Congress is a big deal. I mean, you have to really spend a lot of time. Well, here's what I thought, uh, and, and, and I suffered. And, and I say that term very specifically, mm. uh, for the number of candidates in offices across the waterfront, across the spectrum, I have been asked to be a spokesperson for persons who could not reach my demographic. It could be a geographical one. It could be because I'm a professional educator. It could be because I'm African-American. But there's not one candidate who's been in office for more than two terms who has not come to me to ask me in some capacity to speak on their behalf. I invite them into my classrooms to have them talk about what they do. So I encourage the students to become aware and familiar with how the process operates. Because we're never going to get away from government. It's always going to be there. Uh, Sylvester Reyes asked me to be on his initial uh, speakers bureau when he first ran uh, 16, uh, 18 years ago. I would do that. It, it would seem as though I could be called in to ask to support everybody else to get in. But that must tell me that you have some appreciation for my ability to get a point across, to communicate. But then when it's my turn, when I say, well, I want to get in and put these skills to work myself, then we'll say, well, I don't know. Nah, so I can do everything. I, I can I can. I can. Put the armor all on the tires. I can shine the rims. I can vacuum it out and put the armor all on the dashboard, but don't let me ask for the keys. Yeah, exactly. No, but, I hear you. But here's my, aha, here's my aha moment. Corruption was rampant in 12. 
um, for Congressman Reyes tied to health care services and uh, shady dealings with the county, uh, as an example, uh, with uh, Congressman O'Rourke and uh, his father-in-law, I think his name is Sanders, trying to open up the trade corridors and accelerate uh, trade between the two countries. And I said to Beto then, I said, if you don't pay attention to the negative traffic that comes across, you're going to infect this country with narcotics. That was in 2012. Guess what? Every state of the contiguous 48 states has an overdose problem yep. right now. Opio, and it comes, through, yeah, it's coming, and it's coming through the southern corridor. It's coming through the, the, uh, the borders along, along the south. Uh, take a look at the, uh, the guy's name is Lorenzo Garcia. You have people want to tell me about, well, gee whiz, uh, Hispanics will take care of Hispanics very well, and I'm doing all these things for the betterment of the community. I said, the people who were doing you wrong are just as Hispanic as you are. Yep. These are the, your Latino status, your Negrito status, that's not a qualification. People will do you wrong no matter what, and people will do you right sometimes no matter what. Can I, can I give you an analogy myself? Go ahead. I thought it was good one of yours, but me, well, I don't know if it's an analogy, but uh, a philosophy I use I can't see you I mean literally see you so I have to judge you on your content yeah so it doesn't matter if you're white black short fat ugly you know it doesn't matter to me it does not matter and that's why I try to tell people listen to the content not to who the person is and I'm the first this or that I'm the first that or I want to do this listen to what you're, they're saying and with that being said tell my listeners our listeners why they should vote for Jerome Tillman for Congress let me say this. If you take a look at the broad cross-section of the demographic in, in El Paso, I think I and our campaign best represents the broadest cross-section uh, of this population. Using the connection between those persons with disabilities, well, guess what? Stepping off the battlefield contributes to the very force that you represent. How do we make sure that the citizenship status of any person who lives here, regardless of disability, is still treated with the same dignity and respect as anybody else? Well, soldiers coming off the battlefield face exactly what you've been fighting. So you and I are allies right away. All right. Then take a look at the fact that the economy of this county floats on the Department of Defense in Fort Bliss. Nobody's been a soldier before but me in this race. I understand that population. I understand the demographic, and I understand the connection between the economics of El Paso and the interpersonal relationship that must exist with the Department of Defense. When base realignment and closure came to the Defense Department, Fort Bliss was on the list as one of those to be eliminated. Well, I'm fresh off the battlefield. I'm working at the Greater El Paso Chamber of Commerce. And the CEO walks down the hall to me and said, Jerome, we need a policy statement to make sure Bliss stays open. Nobody knows the military like you do. I wrote the position statement, gave it to Sylvester Reyes. He produces it at the Armed Services Committee. Guess what? Fort Bliss is still open today. Wow. I'm a school teacher. Been at the business for six, I mean, 15 plus years. 21 years of active federal service. If you put Veronica Escobar's service in plus Dory Fennenbach's service in, that's not even half of the time that I've put in for the quality of life improvements for this community. <laughs> Nobody can better represent the cross-section of this community like I can. And by the way, when parents wouldn't come to see me to talk about the education future of their children, they didn't do it because they didn't speak English. What did I do? Pasito, pasito, poco a poco, <laughs> tratar a practicar mi español con personas que hablan más mejor de yo. Now those parents will come in. 
practicar los cosas importantes de cosas académicas en el futuro de los chamacos. You, you, you adapted. You adapted to the situation. Oh, yes. You oh, know yes. what's funny? You, you probably talk more better Spanish than I do. Claro. <laughs> but you know what? Well, you're listening, you've, you've been listening to Jerome Tillman here on Dialogue Radio Network, the Accessibility Corner. Uh, Mr. Tillman, I want to thank you very much for coming on board. Appreciate Tell the opportunity. Your perspective. I, I appreciate your comments now more. Like I've heard your background and you kind of touched more on that. So... You've been listening to the Accessibility Corner here on Dialogue Radio Network, sponsored, of course, by Stephanie Townsend, Ayala, and Associates. And we should see you next week with Patricia Shu. And I'll catch everyone on the rebound. Oh